0: Welcome to the Fort Vancouver Podcast, a program that provides a personal, behind-the-scenes look at Fort Vancouver National Historic Site, the Pacific Northwest's premier archaeological and historic site. I'm Greg Schein, the site's chief ranger and historian, and I'll be your host. Join me as we talk to staff, partners, and volunteers and explore what makes this dynamic urban national park relevant today. In the process, we hope to help you forge your own personal connection to this very special and significant place. Welcome to part two of this episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast. In part one, we introduced staff archaeologists, Dr. Douglas Wilson and Dr. Robert Cromwell. and Let's continue to refer to them as Doug and Bob. And we learned a little bit about their roles. As they both readily admit, though, they do not work alone. They work side by side with a talented cadre of volunteers and staff members.
1: We've got a, a number of staff uh, on hand. I've got a uh, laboratory director who's actually one of my graduate students, Elaine Dorset. She's a grad student at Portland State University, and she's doing her thesis on John McLaughlin's garden, which is directly north of the fort. We have a small replica garden, which is about an acre Maybe. Uh, the actual garden was like eight to nine acres in size, and it was actually on the other side of uh, the fence from the replica garden. So that's a really exciting uh, landscape archaeology project. Uh, we've got a number of other graduate students that, that work with me at Portland State, uh, uh, about uh, three of them uh, working on the village. And then I've got a graduate student uh, at uh, uh, Washington State University, Beth Horton, who's working on her dissertation on Army period, early Army period uh, uh, artifacts and features up on the parade ground. And we had a couple of field schools that are feeding directly into her dissertation.
2: Yeah, so that is again another advantage of our public archeology span program is to have agreements with these universities. So oftentimes we'll have a research assistant who is a graduate student at Portland State University who actually then can serve as the lab director, you know, to help uh, process artifacts as well as to work with volunteers. Um, it's also a way for us to uh, recruit into the National Park Service. And um, many of these graduate students are working for the Park Service as student hires, so they're working on their dissertation, while at the same time they're continuing to do research work in our program for various cultural resources management needs throughout the park. So it gives them invaluable training uh, for working at at a federal agency, learning uh, professional methods in archaeology, while at the same time working at the same place that also happens to be fostering their, their research. Um, in fact, I'm also a product of, of that very fact. You know, I was actually hired as a student hire through Syracuse University and was uh, lucky enough to be working here, you know, employed here at the same time as I was working on my dissertation. So, We
1: also have a core staff uh, here at Fort Vancouver that um, does work at the park as well as works in parks throughout the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Jackie Chung and Eric Gleason kind of form the, the core of that team. We also have uh, Leslie O'Rourke, who has come on in the last year, who's actually uh, heading up the Columbia River Crossing work that we're doing for the new I 5 bridge. And she's actually supervising Jackie and Eric and a number of other uh, archaeologists, uh, National Park Service archaeologists, in studying some of the sites that may be affected by the I-5 bridge, including the village. They were out in the village uh, earlier this uh, summer and uh, also along uh, by the hospital uh, over on the western edges of, uh, of the park, as well as down by the waterfront. So they've been doing quite a bit of archeology. span In fact, they finished up their excavations today and they'll be uh, hurrying up to get the lab work done uh, over the next uh, couple of months. We also uh, have a number of uh, interns and, and student hires that, that work with us, as well as the, the 20 or so volunteers that form uh, really the, the core of our, our program. And, and uh, Dana Holshoe, one of my graduate students who's doing her master's in uh, the, uh, the village area, uh, will probably be looking at slavery issues and identity issues, uh, is working this summer with Elaine to run the kids dig program, we were fortunate enough to get some some money to help facilitate that, and then uh, usually I'll, I'll have a half time research assistant through Portland State University helping us out. So this year we've had quite a we have quite a few staff. We don't always have that many staff, but it kind of depends from project to project. There's kind of an ebb and flow of people.
0: archaeology team and broader cultural resources program at the park today is light years away from what it once was. Dr. Lewis K. Wood, an archaeologist, is credited with the initial excavations in the 1940s that helped identify what had become a lost archaeological site. In part one, Bob alluded to this long legacy of archaeology on site. Here, Doug and Bob outlined some of the highlights of more than 50 years of archeology span at Fort Vancouver.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, when I first came to Fort Vancouver, people would come up to me and say, well, the fort site that's been reconstructed here, it's not on the right footprint, is it? And I would have to explain to them that there were over 50 years, 60 years of excavations that have been done at this fort site that show that yes, the reconstruction was placed exactly on the footprint based on archaeology of where where the the original fort site was it goes all the way back to Lewis Kaywood, who incidentally was a University of Arizona graduate. <laughs> His uh, mentor was Byron Cummings, who was kind of one of the grand old men of southwestern archaeology, and uh, I believe uh, Kaywood worked at Tusiegut before he made its his way up here Um, but uh, he came here in 1947 a year before the park was founded and his uh, mission was to find the fort there was as i had mentioned before a number of uh, records that kind of indicated basically where the fort was there were some fairly crudely drawn maps but but the uh, fort site had basically completely disappeared in the 1860s, it was burned down, and uh, over the years, there had been the spruce mill put on top of it. It was a uh, grass airfield when Lewis Kaywood got here in the 1940s, and he s- just started digging. And within a week, he had actually relocated the fort. He kind of, you know, dug over here, he dug over there found some artifacts that seemed to be from the Hudson's Bay Company but then at the end of the first week he found the foundations of the powder magazine which was the only brick structure at the fort and based on that and looking at some of the early maps he was able to trench out to the edges of the palisade and then trace out the very well-preserved wooden palisade pickets and was able to identify the entire outline of the fort and then could test Off
2: of that to find other buildings. So, Kaywood was able to spend uh, the next basically five summers coming back uh, to fully excavate and map out the footprint of all the structures that were here at the fort. And an amazing thing to think about while we're doing archaeology here is just the way archaeology has changed through time. Our methodologies and the science of archaeology keeps improving, or at least we're hoping that we're improving. Uh, Kaywood, uh, when you look at the photos of his excavations, one striking thing is, he's not using screens. He's not screening his excavated sediments to look for artifacts. And uh, he, in fact, you know, his mission was to find the fort. He wasn't necessarily here to find artifacts. However, we do have a Kaywood collection, and what's amazing is, some of those objects that he collected are relatively intact. And beautiful objects, you know. Some of the spode collection we have, the most intact spode vessels we have, is mostly from Kaywood, Because he was the first one to excavate the site, he found most of the major trash pits, privies, wells, where a lot of these whole items were thrown down and were deeply buried, so he was able to recover them. But he wasn't going after all the small objects, which can tell us an awful lot, and sometimes more, than these more intact objects. And in fact, the one thing he did leave us was an excellent map, which actually he used a surveyor to survey in all of his excavation trenches. And based upon that, we're able to actually do archeology span now where, okay, we anticipate we're gonna see a Kaywood trench. You know, he he might have excavated this trench back in 1951 or 52, something like that. And we can actually see his trenches in profile while we excavate because the dirt was laying to the side of the trench for a time, kinda got mixed together. And while it, when it was put back in, it kind of shifted in color. So if you're carefully excavating, you can actually say, see uh, a, a trench that a previous archaeologist has excavated. And we're able to actually re-excavate Kaywood's trenches and then screen that dirt, and we find all the objects that he literally tossed back in. And we can, you know, actually, like I say, there's a lot of diagnostic data in those artifacts oftentimes. And then, at the very bottom, what we usually find are artifacts that Louis Wood and his crew might have actually thrown in. We'll actually find things like chewing gum, cigarette butts, candy wrappers. In a sense, we jokingly say we're doing the archaeology of archaeologists. But you know that that's, again, going back over 60 years ago. None of those excavators that Wood utilized are still alive today. So we can't go and directly ask them about their activities while they were here. Um, another thing that's interesting is that Kaywood actually went to the local unemployment office to hire his crews, and so he literally hired ditch diggers. They were not trained archaeologists; they were literally ditch diggers going out to dig trenches with one archaeologist to observe and record while they're working. Um, so, you know, for Vancouver, those first five years it was pivotal, allowed the Park Service to determine where the footprint of the fort was. And then in many ways, you have to wait close to 20 years before any additional archaeology occurs here. Uh, Where that actually starts back out in the village. Where the Park Service, starting in 1968, wanted to know if they could identify where the village was. And they brought on a young graduate student from Bryn Mawr College named Susan Cardis who spent the next two summers, 1968 and 69, actually looking for evidence of the village. And she actually did find the remnants of at least four different houses and some interesting features. In 1969, she brought out an archaeological field school from the University of Washington, uh, which was the first field school hosted here. And
1: Bryn Mawr, too. And
2: Bryn Mawr combined. And she also was working with uh, Edward Larrabee, who was another archaeologist from back east, Um, who actually came out here and excavated. And then maybe I'll let Doug talk about uh, jumping ahead to the 1970s with archaeology here.
1: Yeah, there was a a major excavation program in the 1970s uh, headed up by uh, Jake Hoffman and Lester Ross. And they were two Park Service archaeologists. And their program was about five years and they excavated many of the structures uh, within the Fort Stockade with the view of gathering information to combine with the historical information to reconstruct the fort. And uh, we owe a lot to those gentlemen, uh, particularly Lester Ross, uh, really inventoried and studied many of the types of artifacts from the Hudson's Bay Company and really became an expert in Hudson's Bay Company Uh, artifacts and he's really world-renowned as an expert in things like trade beads and uh, spode ceramics and things of that sort. So really everything that we do in terms of the analysis of the collection really relies on these earlier researchers and including Lester Ross's uh, uh, typologies about the, the different types of artifacts that are present here. In the later on, in the 1980s, some of the archaeologists that started with uh, Lester Ross and and, and uh, Jake Hoffman went on to become major players in the archaeology here. Uh, Bryn Thomas, uh, for example, uh, started in the 1970s and went on to do much of the archaeology in the 80s and 1990s here at Fort Vancouver, and uh, including work. Uh, Uh, in the village and up on Officers Row, and really pioneering a lot of the different sites uh, that um, had never been looked at before. He was also involved in the State Route 14 I-5 interchange project, which is what we call cultural resources management. When a major project, like a major highway project like that, goes in, you are required usually by law to bring an archaeologist to make sure you're not going to destroy anything that might be very valuable. Well, this particular State Route 14 coming into I 5 runs right through the village and part of uh, the U.S. Army post. And so, really, during the late 70s and early, into the early 80s, there was a tremendous amount of archaeology done in the village uh, by uh, people like David Chance. Uh, Susan uh, or Carolyn Carley and Bryn Thomas and and, uh, Chuck Hibbs uh, all did projects that really uh, added to Hoffman and Ross's and really expanded our understanding of the site in in general and the village and uh, the uh, army story in particular.
2: Again, when you look back, when you read through, you'll read through like a K. Wood report, his report on his five years here. And then you move forward to Susan Curtis's Ph.D. dissertation on her work in the village from 1971. And then you look at Chance and Chance's reports from the mid-70s, Bryn Thomas's reports from the village from 1980, 81. Um, one thing that you definitely see is an advancement in methods. Every one of those reports brings a little something different that the previous generation didn't. Whether it was just sim- simple things like hypotheses, you know, things that we want to test for. Um, when you look at Kaywood, he doesn't use a grid. He's just going out and excavating trenches, looking for the footprints of buildings. Susan Cardis was the first archaeologist to actually lay out a grid, Um And so with that grid, it's much easier to re-identify where she excavated and keep provenience. Um, Hoffman and Ross were the first two archaeologists to systematically screen their their sediments, looking for artifacts. Um, Hoffman and Ross mostly apparently used half-inch or quarter-inch screen. Now, today, since Doug and I have been here, we've been using eighth-inch screen nested on top of quarter-inch screen. So we actually are getting smaller and smaller and looking for those artifacts. In
1: fact, we're sampling uh, water screening through one millimeter mesh, looking for things like the really tiny beads. Because some of the beads here will actually fall through that three millimeter mesh. That's right. Um, And for things like pins, uh, pins, little straight pins were used as clothing, and adornment, plus looking for things like seeds and charcoal and things that are very tiny but can tell a
2: lot about the story. And so when you look at the history of archaeology here, it can be humbling because, uh, you know, nothing against Kay Wood, uh, bless his soul, he's, he's no longer with us, but I look back at what he did for archaeology and it almost makes me shudder, the methods that he used. But then I think in 60 years hence, you know, the next generation, two generations away of Park Service archaeologists who will hopefully be still working here, what are they going to think of our methods today? Are we going to be making them shudder? What are the things that we're not thinking of that it will be a simple, you know, why didn't they think of that 60 years ago? Why weren't they asking these questions? Or that the technologies, you know, one thing that we have now that, haywood could never have even dreamt of we have remote sensing devices we have things like ground penetrating radar or or cesium magnetometers which can actually take a glimpse a snapshot of what's under the earth without actually having to excavate it to give us more data before we actually do excavations Um, and i can only imagine what technologies are going to have 60 years from now um, in comparison to what we're doing so a big effort Oftentimes, people ask, why aren't you excavating more? And honestly, around here, we have a preservation ethic. And honestly, the best way to preserve an archaeological site is to not dig it. Once you excavate it, it's done. You
1: know, yeah. you, it's- in, in the old days, they would excavate 100% of a site before doing a reconstruction. Nowadays, we do a sample of the site. And many times, we'll leave the original features in place and in working with our interpretive staff, and our maintenance staff, and uh, in the reconstructions of, say, the village houses, we're actually putting those houses in without disturbing the ground surface so that what remains of those house sites will be there for future generations when new methods are developed. So really, we're, we're trying to do as, as little damage to the sites as possible while maximizing our information that we can gain from
2: them. So if we have research needs or if a project requires that archaeology be done ahead of time, we will, as Doug's saying, we'll go in there, we'll maximize the amount of recovery that we can get out of a specific location but we also have the ethic, if there's no need to excavate it, if you, if we are going to reconstruct something and it can go right over the top of these preserved archaeological units without damaging it, hey, why not? You know, it already survived in the ground for maybe 180 years or much longer. And, um, you know, who's to say it won't be there in another 180 or 200 or 500 years from now? So we have to take a, a geological view many times of what we're doing let's leave as much of it as we can in the ground for the future because they're going to have so many more technologies that we can't even dream of at this point.
1: In fact, one of the the rituals that all archaeologists do really speaks to that notion that we will be followed by other people. There's a, a tradition in archaeology that goes back to Lane Fox Pitt Rivers, who is an English Lord, actually, he was Sir uh, uh, Pitt Rivers, and at the end of his excavations, he would put a special coin in the base of the excavations so that future generations of archaeologists, when they came across this funny square-shaped feature, would know that it was he who had been there at a particular time period and that it was a scientific excavation. So every time we're finished with an excavation unit here at Fort Vancouver, we put a uh, penny of the the same date of the year that we're excavating in the base of the unit with the expectation that in the future archaeologists will be puzzling about this funny square-shaped feature and they'll see that, oh, that dates exactly
2: to this time period. That must be Bob Cromwell and Doug Wilson's (laughs) excavations. Or even at the site of the jail, which was the first site that Doug and I worked on, actually just two weeks into our tenure here, um, there we found a partial sill remnant of the jail, the north wall of the jail, and we took great lengths to preserve it in place. It was a wooden, uh, essentially plank that was part of probably the sill of the building, and we worked with our maintenance staff. We actually used some plastic wood, so recycled plastic that's made to you know to look like wood. And we actually built a structure around this piece of original wood, put it over the top of that. And into that plastic, we actually mounted a little brass disc, which we had actually stamped in the date of the excavation, as well as uh, the initials of the excavators. And I believe we put coordinates from our grid. So, you know, maybe 50, 100 years hence, if uh, that jail is no longer there uh, and somebody needs to re-excavate again... Hopefully that plastic wood marker is going to be there with a brass little disc in it. And, you know, if they refer back to the records, hopefully they'll be able to figure out what that represents. And if they lift it up, maybe that wood sill from the Hudson's Bay Company Jail might still even be there. Hello, this is Celeste Jones, and I am a volunteer. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of this episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast. Hey, this is Cassie Anderson. I'm a park guide. Welcome back to our episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast.
0: One of the more surprising names associated with the history of archaeology at Fort Vancouver is poet and essayist Gary Snyder. Here's Doug explaining Snyder's connection.
1: Yeah, Gary Snyder is a, a beat poet, a so called beat poet. He actually uh, was a student at Lewis and Clark College, and he was uh, in anthropology. He was a student of anthropology, and he heard about this gig over at Fort Vancouver that was going on. For the summer, it happened to be Lewis wood was here. So actually, Gary Snyder uh, worked as an archaeologist here at Fort Vancouver, uh, and uh, he typed out his field notes. Uh, is really an amazing thing. Uh, most archaeologists don't type out their field notes, but Gary Snyder did, and, and uh, he actually went on to, to become quite famous as a uh, beat poet in the 50s and uh, is still
2: uh, very famous today. So I should take that back that none of uh, Kate Wood's excavators are still alive. I, I was remiss. <laughs> Clearly, uh, he is still alive. Yes, Gary would appreciate it. Yes. <laughs>
0: So, to sum up, we have a nationally significant site with an impressive history of archaeological inquiry. However, only a small percentage of the park has been examined archaeologically. With so many opportunities remaining, where would our archaeologists like to dig
2: if they had the occasion to do so anywhere on site? The village is probably the ripest with, with information uh, just because of the multicultural nature. Um, of the occupants that were there and the number of households that were there. But amazingly, inside the fort, I think there are a couple of locations that if research needs ever drove excavations, it would be lovely to take another look at. Um, Amazingly, the bachelor's quarters, which was the major area where the clerks and gentlemen of the company resided, has been very poorly studied. Uh, Less than 10% of the site has been excavated, and most of that was by Lewis K. Wood, and by Hoffman and Ross, um, so probably you know, eighty to ninety percent of that site should be relatively intact, and it could provide amazing amounts of data on how the gentlemen resided inside the fort versus again to compare to how the average person in the village was was living. Um, beyond that, architecturally, one location that I would just love to get into is actually the beef store. I know it sounds like a very mundane building, but um, it, it was a building where the Hudson's Bay Company actually salted beef and barreled them. Um, Louis K. Wood in his excavations, found, he has a wonderful photo showing remnant flooring, so wood planking of the flooring, uh, apparently on Original Joyce, with an intact barrel <laughs> filled with some sort of tar-like substance, and there's actually a cow hoof sticking out of the barrel. And, and just the level of preservation, there aren't very many other locations based upon previous archaeology where you probably have that much preserved architectural remnants of Hudson's Bay Company sites um, here at the fort. And I think that would be a fascinating location to re-excavate to see if K. Wood maybe left all that in place and, and maybe gather some more information on specific architectural details on how some of these buildings were constructed inside the fort.
1: For me, I think um, the village holds so much potential for understanding the incredible changes that happen in the Pacific Northwest through time from you know the just a few years after Lewis and Clark, you get um, a large uh, concentration of tribal people, uh, Europeans, Americans, all, you know, Hawaiians, all mixed together in this colonial situation. And it really has, you know, even though there's been lots of excavation, I think, you know, other than Bob's recent dissertation, there hasn't been a lot of synthetic work looking at, you know, modern theories of identity to to really flesh out the, the village. So, Obviously, a place of research would be the village. But then two other sites that really are, are border either side of that. One is we know that there's uh, pre-contact American Indian sites, and this was known as uh, Fort Plain Prairie when the Hudson's Bay Company was here. And prairies were very rich habitat for American Indians, and it's right on the Columbia River with this prairie next to it, and we know that there was either a village site or some sort of a fishing camp or gathering camp over near the waterfront. So the waterfront would be a very interesting place to examine to see if there are some remains of, say, Chinook and Plank houses or temporary summer structures related to that. On the other side of, of the Hudson's Bay Company is the spruce mill. And there's been lots of excavations in the fort that have found traces of the spruce mill, but nothing has really synthesized that information and nothing has really been directed to specific sites in the spruce mill that would really better tell that story of this incredible World War I um, industrial site that had 3,000 troops working in it. So probably those two sites would be a lot of fun, plus the village. See, I can't just pick just one.
0: (laughs) Part of the reason that archaeological resources, such as those here at Fort Vancouver, are so valuable in helping us understand the area's history, is in their context, where they come from in the ground, and what else is in and around them. So let's say you're out walking, either in the park or somewhere else, and you come across some type of artifact. What should you do? Well, here's the advice of our archaeologists.
1: Don't put it in your pocket. Leave it on the ground. Do not bring it to the archaeologists. If you if you find something that's really cool, if you can take a picture of it with a camera, then you can capture it for yourself for for the future. But we, you know, these uh, archaeological sites are, are it's very important to preserve the context of the find. If you you take an artifact away from where it was first put down by the people that used it it's like tearing out a page of a book you've lost some of that story of the past so we would prefer that people leave those artifacts where they are and perhaps in the future a future archaeologist will use that to better tell the story here but, but we don't want people
2: to be junior archaeologists and do it on their own as I like to say treat Objects that you find like an endangered species. Because archaeological sites are finite. Once they are removed, you can't recreate them. And so the best thing is, Doug is saying, shoot a photo of it if you really want to record it and leave it be. If you're on a federal or state land, um, you know, let an employee of that agency know. Hey, I found this. If you took a photo, if you're really out hiking and you have a GPS unit. Hey, record the GPS coordinates. Again, bring that information to the land management agency. Bring it to their attention. It might be a site they don't even know about. It helps archaeologists to know what's out there. With a photo and GPS coordinates, they can go out, relocate it. Is this something I need to be concerned about? Is this something bigger that I wasn't aware of? Are there more objects out there that then can be added to the database and help with the knowledge of that specific agency? So, like I say, treat it like it's an endangered species. You don't go out and you shoot every endangered species that you find and bring it in as a trophy. It's the same type of ethic. Leave it alone. If you must, if you really want the information, if you want to show people what you found, take a photo of it. Because that's, in many ways, is going to last just as long as that object. You know, another thing to think about is, uh, you know, in 50 years' time, maybe that's sitting in a shoebox... And let's say that uh, unfortunately you pass away and your relatives end up with a shoebox filled with objects. And if you didn't take the time to label where it came from, again, it's worthless to the family now as well as worthless to the archaeologist. And oftentimes objects like that end up getting thrown away. So you've done a double injustice. You've taken the information away for research and knowledge of what happened in a location from the past. But even with your best efforts to retain it, At some point, more than likely, what's going to happen is it's probably just going to be thrown away or sold at a garage sale. So it's not even going to have meaning to your immediate family.
0: Feeling inspired? Well, we're not going to leave you hanging. Jobs in archaeology do not come up very often, but they do exist. So do many volunteer opportunities and internships, especially at Fort Vancouver, where 515 volunteers provided over 45,000 hours of volunteer service, helping us to serve over 1 million visitors this past year. Now, in our closing section, Doug and Bob share their thoughts on how you can get involved in archaeology at Fort Vancouver.
1: Well, we've got a great volunteer program here. So if you're you know, basically high school age and above um, and you're interested in archaeology, don't mind once in a while talking to the public. Come uh, visit us uh, and we can get you signed up for our volunteer program. Again, you start with laboratory work and work your way up to, uh, after I think it's about 100 hours in the lab, you can come out and, and work in the field with us and, and we'll train you. Other ways are through the Oregon Archaeological Society. We have a great avocational archaeology society right across the uh, the river in Portland. They have programs uh, every month, uh, and uh, they actually have training programs. There's also the Park Service and Forest Service have a pit project uh, program, Passport in Time, which allows uh, avocational archaeologists to get out and work on field projects with archaeologists in other agencies uh, including the park service
2: and beyond that i mean obviously the volunteer program here is a great way to start in in the field uh, and and uh, actually practice being an archaeologist we get a lot of questions from young people specifically those in high school what should i do if i want to become an archaeologist and something i always advise them on is read just read as, in as many different topics as is possible, I found the best archaeologists are those that have a huge multidisciplinary database on call in their own mind. Just from having read, you know, everything they can get their hands on in history, material culture, anthropology, um, just varied, you know, disciplines. Just read as much as you can, learn as much as as you can. Travel, learn about other cultures, um, and then, of course, once you get to college, uh, you want to look at anthropology. If you really want to become an archaeologist, you you are going. It is a subfield of anthropology. You're going to have to get a degree in anthropology uh, to practice as a professional archaeologist. So, those would be my recommendations to again the young people out there who are interested in pursuing a career in archaeology. If you have more questions about archaeology, you can feel free to contact us. Uh, Most of our contact information is on our website. Well, that's it for our
0: two-part look at the park's archaeology program. Thanks to our archaeologists, Dr. Douglas Wilson and Dr. Robert Cromwell, Doug and Bob, for carving some time from their busy schedules to give us an insider's look at the past present, and future of archaeology at Fort Vancouver. A special thank you to the talented classical guitarist Michael Leong. This episode featured the pieces Corante and Gavotte from his album Tropical Tapas.
2: Hello, this is Celeste Jones and I'm a volunteer. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed this behind-the-scenes journey and that we've been able to connect your interests to the meanings inherent in the park's many resources. For more information on the park's programs and events, please visit our website at www.nps.gov FOVA, F-O-V-A or call our Visitor Information Desk at 360-816-6230 during regular business hours. Thanks for listening.